is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. Hello, hello. Welcome inside the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Another great episode. I'm Zach Wells in Cincinnati, joined on Zoom. You can't see him, but I can. And he is looking dapper, as always, in his son's room with Captain America logo and paraphernalia behind him. Matt Swinney. Matt, this is kind of a Super Bowl time of the year. You've got baseball playoffs, expanded postseason. And I know you're paying close attention. I am as well. And before we get into it, how much fun are you having? I, I'm I'm enjoying it just because, look, at the end of the day, like, I don't know. We're, so we're recording this on uh, Friday last night late. You might have been you might have been asleep because you're an hour ahead. But watching that Cardinals Padres game when Fernando Tatis, that bat flip was so epic. And I and, I, you know, I'm a 45 year old guy. I could I could easily play the old school baseball Oh man, he sure makes the game fun. It is it is fun to watch these kids go, and I I think we're in I mean frankly a renaissance of just young baseball talent uh, across the board. Pitching, offense, it, it's a ton of fun to watch. Fitting today that we have Katie Russell Newland, Doctor Katie Russell Newland, on our podcast to give you some background on Doctor Newland. She's a college classmate of ours who is a huge baseball fan as well. She lost her mother several years ago to colon cancer. They bonded when she was a little girl and then a teenager, a young adult over Cubs baseball. And then when Katie's mother passed away, she kind of went on and kind of put herself out there and visited every one of the 30 major league ballparks, which was a dream that they both shared. And Katie is just a fantastic guest, an amazing woman in her own right, a cancer survivor. And she really talks about just the, the joys that that brought her, what she learned about herself, what she learned about her mother, going around the country and fulfilling her dream and her mother's dream after after mom passed away. So Dr. Katie Russell Newland will be with us today. And Matt, I'm kind of torn about this baseball postseason format. I, I came in thinking, wow, it's going to be awesome, right? You're going to have some, it's going to be like the second round of the NCAA tournament, right? You're going to have some really hot eight and nine seeds that might knock off the number one seed because all you have to do is win two games. All you have to do is the equivalent of winning a weekend series, right? But I think you've seen that it's too diluted. 16 teams is too many. 10 might be too few like back in the old days, but I think 16 is too many. I'm in Cincinnati. The Reds went to Atlanta, did not score a run in 22 innings, set a record for postseason futility. I don't think Toronto had a chance against Tampa. I don't think the Milwaukee Brewers had a prayer as a sub-500 team against the Los Angeles Dodgers. I think there needs to be some wiggle room. It's good for baseball. It's definitely good for uh, the ledger, the the bank accounts, and the TV revenue. But I think for the quality of play, it, it leaves a little bit to be desired. Yeah, so I think I think we may differ here a little bit. I think that No. <laughs> Never. And, and and I want to clarify too, and I think you might even clarify this for yourself too, is you know, viewing this as 
2020 versus viewing it as the future of postseason baseball. I think, yeah, they're kind of two different things. And so, you know, here in 2020, I I think that a 162 game season, you're able to handle your warts. You're able to overcome slumps, injuries, highs, lows, guys up from AAA, guys getting sent out, trade deadline, all of that. And I think the playing field really evens itself out over six months. Yeah, for sure. The, the, the game sprint. Yeah, the the yeah the cream rises to the top over 162 games, right? And the and the sludge hits the bottom, and there's there's no doubt about that. And I think, you know, also with that, I mean, you mentioned the trade deadline. Also with that, you have teams over a 60-game season who had no idea if they were going for it or not. And so you ended up with this weird trade deadline where I know I know you were a big advocate that you thought that the Reds should have sold. Um, instead, they, they, they kind of stood pat. I guess they maybe bought a little bit, but like they pretty much just stood pat, which frankly is what a lot of teams did because I think they just didn't know how to even evaluate what they had. And, and so, you know, to me, the 60-game season – while I will view it through my eyes as, as a complete season, as a real thing, like I wouldn't put any asterisks on anything because at the end of the day, every team was facing the same adversity. And so everyone was on a level playing field. Every GM was just as confused as the next GM about what to do about a trade deadline. And so for me, because of that, I'm okay this season with this big postseason because I do think that there were some teams that were maybe towards the bottom that didn't perform as well over a 60 game stretch. And, and I'll use my Astros as an example of that. While I do not think that this Astros team is great. In fact, they have not played well at all um, across this season. I think if you gave them 162 games and, and, and the Yankees are a really good example of this too, of teams that if they get healthy, that I mean, I actually think that given 162 games and you get the Yankees healthy, they catch the Rays and they probably win that division. That's my guess. Although that Rays team is really good, so if they stayed healthy, maybe not. In fact, you'd probably have one of the great pennant races of all time in that in that division. But if I think about the Astros, they ended up two games under 500 and limped to the finish, losing three out of four to the lowly Texas Rangers at the end to become, along with Milwaukee, only the second and third playoff teams of all time to be under 500. And then the Astros go in and beat the Twins two in a row. And now that's not saying a whole lot. The Twins postseason record speaks for itself, 18 in a row lost. But at the same time, and no I think, yeah, and I, yeah, no Donaldson. But I think, I think you and I could also look at it. So now the Astros have the A's next. You and I could probably agree that like, man, this Astros team could go on a run and everyone could hate them even more because they end up in the World Series, right? And, and so to me, like this little season – I'm okay with it being bigger. However, one of the things I said to you before we started recording was I do think that going forward, if they're going to expand the postseason, I don't have a problem with it, but I do think that they need to reward the, the, the best record in each league and they really didn't get rewarded, right? I would have been very upset or would have thought that it was a little bit of a sham if either the Rays or the Dodgers had lost in the first round just because they, they earned the right to get something extra by being so good in the regular season. Well, if I'm Kevin Cash or Dave Roberts, the managers of the Rays and the Dodgers respectively, I want a first round bye. I want to rest my team. I do not want to travel. Not that they had to travel anyway, but I want to be able to have the reward of setting my pitching the way I want it set, 
And I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. I also think if you scale back and maybe split the difference a little bit, now you have 16 teams to 10, maybe 12 is okay. 14 might be a little bit on the high end for me, but I think 16 is too many. But then on the other side of it, and like I said, Matt, I'm torn. I'm watching last night. The San Diego Padres are a really exciting young team, and they almost got eliminated last night because they are running into a St. Louis Cardinals team that is, again, hovering near 500, would not have been a playoff team if not for the expanded format this year. And I'm very interested to see what happens on Friday today when we're recording because it's going to be who's the tougher team, right? And you've got Yadier Molina, and you've got Paul Goldschmidt, and you've got the great players, Matt Carpenter, that have seen a lot of battles, been through a lot of games, and I'm really interested to see what happens today. The young kids in San Diego, more talented probably, don't know what they don't know against the Wiley Vets from St. Louis and their manager, Mike Schilt, who I have all the respect in the world for, a lifer in the minor leagues, rode all the buses, came up through the Cardinals organization, and I think the Cardinals might win today. I really do. Yeah, and I mean, I think that I think the Cardinals are maybe the best example of what we're talking about. I think I think if I remember it, they ended up exactly 500 at the end of the regular season, and by winning on Sunday, right, that kept them from having to go to Detroit on Monday, um, play one game. If they win that, then they're done. But if they don't win that, then they've got to play a double header. You know, j- just an insane kind of end to the season there. And thinking of the Cardinals, and I'll and I'll I'll relate this to them to the Marlins too, though the Marlins earn their way in no matter what. But the the Cardinals, that's my other reason why I think I've liked this this bigger format, more teams format, because the Cardinals are the perfect example, right? They had there were there were teams that had played 20 games when the Cardinals had played five because of the COVID outbreak on that team. And so to me, what they have been able to do, I mean, we know, like, imagine being Mike Schilt and the staff there of trying to figure out how to juggle a pitching staff in 2020 when arms are getting hurt left and right across the league, right? Uh, How you juggle that staff when you have double headers, like, two or three times a week. I mean, that is not easy to do. And that is not how, that is not how the game is built today. Now I get it. They had a little bit of an expanded roster to be able to manage a little bit of that. But you know, when you're talking about the 12th or 13th guy out of the bullpen, we're not talking about, you know, a a guy who can go out and get a ton of outs in a major league baseball game. So I think that maybe that's why I like this expanded format is because it does allow for a team like the Cardinals that um, was hit with all of the tough things. Now you can blame it on certain players or whatever, if you want to, but the reality is, is they had to overcome that and they, they've got the warts to prove it. And the, maybe not even so much the warts, they've got the, they've got the war wounds to prove it. And I think that's a little bit why you're seeing them even, even give the Padres a run for their money. I think the Padres got a bad draw here because I actually think that the Padres may be, I mean, right there with the Dodgers, the probably the second best team in the national league. The problem is, is they're, they're coming up against like Wiley vets. You're right. But also this like kind of tested team that I'm sure has bonded a lot this season going through what they did in the, in having a breakout on that team. And, and I could see the Cardinals, even if they get past San Diego today, I mean, I don't, I don't know who they'd play next. They would not play the Dodgers, right? They would play, um, they would play the Braves. I'm pretty sure. So if that's the case, then 
I mean, you see that Cardinals team knocking off a, in my opinion, a, a not great Braves team. I mean, it's a good Braves team. I don't think it's a great Braves team. I think that's totally possible. I think one of the downsides, Matt, of the expanded playoff format, just while we hash out the benefits and the drawbacks, is as a fan or an executive or a player, I think, and I touched on this in one of our previous episodes, I think there is a tendency to purchase fool's gold a little bit along the way, to get feeling about yourself a little bit better than you should. And I'll give an example. The Cincinnati Reds, I live in Cincinnati. I've gone to the Reds games and covered the Reds since 2007. They were not a good offensive club. They vastly underachieved this year. Bob Castellini, the owner, has done everything short of come to your front door and beg you to come to the games. This is an ownership group committed financially and otherwise to winning. So what did they do, Zach? What did they do? Okay. They went out in the offseason and signed Shogo Akiyama off the foreign market to a $21 million contract over three years. Shogo Akiyama all year was only in the lineup against right-handed pitching. In Cincinnati, that can't happen. Okay. They went out and signed Mike Moustakis. 64 million to play second base. I thought it was a little high, but I tell you what, they made a commitment to winning. Moose, love him. 18 career postseason RBIs turned in an offer in the series against the Braves, and he wasn't alone. Okay. Nick Castellanos came over, you know, Detroit, Chicago, now Cincinnati. He can opt out this year. A productive player also wants to hit every ball onto the interstate beyond the right field fence. Okay. As the Reds got hot, they were, I believe, 20 and 26 on September 12th. And to their credit, they got hot down the stretch and they started to hit. But in the playoffs, you always go back to what your bubblegum card is, both individually and collectively. This team couldn't hit. But there was always this lingering feeling with the expanded format, oh, we're in it. Oh, we're a playoff team. Oh, we can get in on the back end. Oh, we can give it a higher seed fits. So they didn't sell. They bought. They got Brian Goodwin from the Angels and Archie Bradley from the Diamondbacks. They bought, they should have sold because Trevor Bauer is going to probably win the National League Cy Young Award or he's going to get a lot of votes for it because he had an unbelievable season. You have Joey Votto at first base making $25 million a year to hit 235. I don't think they can afford to re-sign him. So Trevor Bauer might get away for free. Nick Castellanos can opt out and go somewhere else for free And you get worse instead of better at the trade deadline by not moving those pieces thinking, oh, we're a contender. No, you're not. You went to Atlanta and didn't score a run in 22 straight innings. That's who you were all year and everybody knew it. Yeah. And I think, I I definitely think you're right about that. I mean, I think in the Reds case, they were in a weird, so, so you're in the middle of Cincinnati. So you, you probably can't see the forest for the trees. I will tell you from an outsider's perspective, if I'm looking at that team, I look at it and say, no, they can't hit, and that's a problem. But they do have the three-headed monster that is Bauer, Castillo, and Sonny, and Sonny Gray. And those three guys, I don't they care. Dealt. They dealt. And I, don't, and I don't care who you're playing. I mean, I even said when they, if they made it in as an eight seed, look out Dodgers. Because those three guys, if they can – and by the way, you saw it happen against the Braves. Trevor Bauer and that bullpen, by the way – took them 13 innings without giving up a run to a good Braves team. And by the way, give, give Atlanta credit. They did the exact same thing. I mean, the, what the, the, the Reds left like 13 people on base and left the bases loaded in extras. I mean, 
so to me, I get it from a GM perspective of looking at the Reds and saying, okay, well, we got those three guys. And I do find it interesting that they didn't go try to get a big bat for the middle of that lineup. That's what I would have done at the trade deadline. Like if you have decided we're going to go all in because we may not get to keep Bauer next year. And this may be our best chance for a little while with a pitching with these three guys dealing as much as they are, then let's go get a bat or two to fill out this lineup. But at the same time, if I look at them, if you look at the reds on paper, that team did not perform offensively to the back of the baseball card as it relates historically, right? Like you just, they just never hit and they never hit timely. And that's part of it, right? They just, and, and what did, they ended up with like a team 212 batting average, I think I saw in the playoffs, which is, I, I'm, I'm going to get the statistic wrong, but it's something like the worst team batting average for a, maybe for anybody, not even just a playoff team, like the worst team batting average. And you can say what you want about batting average in the sabermetrics world. I get it. But like the worst team batting average since like 1906 or something like that, like 212 is ridiculous. And it's not like they were hitting a billion home runs. They weren't the twins from last year who, by the way, did hit for better average and, and hit a billion home runs. So to me, like I, I get it from the Reds perspective. I do agree like bringing it back to the circle of are there too many playoff teams? I mean, I do agree that it does create that fool's gold, but at the same time, I also think that fool's gold will help to figure out the cream as it relates to front offices too, right? And how well they're managed. And, you know, it's funny when uh, I'll, I'll bring it back to the Astros, it's a team I know the most about. I was frustrated that they didn't go get, they didn't do anything at the trade deadline, literally nothing. And they were injured, hurt. Their pitching staff was a mess, the whole thing. And they did nothing. And maybe, maybe that ended up being the smart decision, right? Like maybe that is the front office looking at it and saying, look, this is not the team of the last few years. We're injured. I'm not going to go spend a bunch of money so that we can't go sign George Springer in the offseason so that we can't sign Yuli Uriel in the offseason. By the way, they re-signed Yuli on a very team-friendly deal. You know, maybe they looked at it from that perspective of, but we're going to go with what we got. And if we get hot in the postseason and we pull something special off, great. But if we don't, that's okay. We're going to play for 2021. And as a fan, it's hard to hear that. But at the same time, they just went into a series and on the road where they've been a terrible road team and beat the twins. So maybe I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. You know what I mean? So to me, I think that the, the point there is that while the reds maybe made the wrong decision, the Astros on the other side of that clearly made the right one for them. And they may, they may lose in the next round to the A's. And if that's okay. And if that's the case, then I'm kind of okay. I, I don't want to see it happen, but I kind of, I'm okay with it just because I think this isn't the team that it was the last couple of years. And if that means that we do have a chance to re-sign some of these guys because we didn't go trade away farm pieces and everything else, you get Jordan Alvarez back next year and yay, yay, yay. Everybody's good outside of the whole Verlander thing, but it gives them flexibility in the off season. And so my point is, is that I just think that this expanded postseason will allow those GMs who are really, really good at their jobs to the same thing, right? Just, just trust in my system and, and I'll bring you to the promised land. And maybe the Reds are seeing kind of the downside of that, right? The Brewers have incredible fans. You know, back in the day when I worked in Wisconsin, it's very common for, you know, 
church groups in Oshkosh to load buses to go down to Miller Park and they'll have 35,000, 36,000 in there on a getaway day on a Thursday for a 12:35 start. They have incredible fans. And I'm just, I'm wondering if the Brewers have the incentive and I watched the Brewers this year and, and this is no insult to how hard they prepare or how hard they play. It just wasn't a really good club. Yeah. Personal opinion. Do you have as an incentive in the Brewers front office uh, really the motivation to go out and, and really improve the club. If you can go to the fan base and say, Hey, look, we were a, we were a playoff team this year and yeah. we have a reigning MVP in Christian Yelich. And we went to LA and, and came up short, but we were competitive both nights. It's a question only they can answer. What I'm saying is if you have, Oh, we were a playoff team last year, there may not be that, that push to go and really improve all that much. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting team in, in Milwaukee because they, they have basically no room for error, right? If, if somebody, if, if they get injured, if they have, you know, if they have any of that kind of stuff, that, that team is in trouble because they're they not deep. Great manager and great yeah, right, but they're not deep. And, you know, to me, if I am, if I'm, look, if Christian Yelich is going to go out and hit, you know, less than his weight, and then, you know, and, and he's not going to have any pop and he's not going to hit the ball out of the ballpark and he's not going to do any of that, then th that's where they have no room for error. And look, Yelich is a great guy by all accounts. Um, he is a fantastic baseball player. He's a deserving MVP. He's going to be in the MVP conversation for many years to come. He had a terrible year and he will be the first person to admit that. And I, I do think we have seen a lot of stars struggle in this season. And I'm curious, this wasn't on our like docket of things we were going to talk about, but I'm curious, do you think Yelich is a good example by I, all I've ever heard is that that guy works harder than anybody else in the game. And so it, it wasn't for lack of trying, but I wonder, especially oh, I in a city. Is, I don't think anybody's suggesting these guys are, are trying to make outs or anything like that. No, no, just, no. It, it's a weird time where you have, all of this sideshow related to the baseball field and you have protocols and testing and masks and all of that stuff. And it's really, how much time is there for baseball? And, and, and that's, I think the question I was going to ask you is not, not just that, but the lack of fans um, in the stands. I, 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 I would love to know if you gave a bunch of baseball players truth serum how they would answer this question, like to, to say a Christian Yelich, you, you talk about how great the fan base is in Milwaukee, and that's true. And if they're used to 35, 36,000 on a getaway day for a 1235 start on a Thursday, and then you go from that to essentially silence in the stadium, you know, somebody like a Christian Yelich, does he feed off of that in some way? Does he? And so I, you've seen some of these stars um, and I, I haven't seen it as much with, you know, the utility guys, the bottom of the order guys, you know, the middle relievers, you know, the guys who aren't used to being stars, but we've seen it more with the big names where they've just had tough seasons. And a lot of being a superstar athlete is being able to sort of channel all of that energy that comes in a stadium and put it inside your body and then hit the ball out of the ballpark. Right. And it's how Tiger Woods can, you know, stand on it. You asked me to stand on a tee with anybody watching and I will shank it every single time. Well, he wants there to be 
50,000 people standing around watching him. He's actually better when that happens. And so I think this- Not on the backswing, please. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, we can talk about whether or not he's an asshole about it, but that's not the point. The the point is, is, you know, I, I wonder with these baseball players in particular, I think we're seeing some of that, some of these stars who really need that, like, you know, that extra piece from the crowd and just piping in that crowd noise is not the same thing. Um, so I'm curious on that note, uh, it was announced. So I live in the, the great state of Texas where for the National League, so they're, for anybody who doesn't know, they're essentially going into kind of a pod system um, from here on out for the rest of the playoffs. So the American League is going to play in uh, Dodger Stadium and in Petco in San Diego. And then the National League is going to play at Globe Life in uh, Dallas and Arlington, the Ranger Stadium, and then at Minute Maid in Houston. And then ultimately the NLCS and the World Series will be at Globe Life in Arlington. And they announced this week, I'm guessing you saw this, that they're going to allow 11,500 fans into Globe Life for both the NLCS and the World Series. They will not be be being allowing that group in California. The governor has not signed off on that, but in Texas, because we are who we are, and coronavirus doesn't exist, we are going to allow fans and stands. So I'm curious, do you think that that has an effect? Um, And does it give, in my opinion, does it give the National League champion a leg up in the World Series because they got to play in front of fans for the first time in a while the series before? Do you think it matters? I think it does because this is such an adrenaline business. It's such a performance-based business. And you can talk to really anyone in that line of work, right? You know, Matt, you run a fashion company and having, you know, fashion shows. I think uh, the models, the really talented folks that you work with really get a boost from that. Being on the runway, seeing people, being part of that energy, being part of that vibe. And I think that that really matters to a professional athlete, being able to sign autographs before the game, being able to go talk to the kids, being able to go take photos. Now, I don't know how much of that will be allowed or how much of that interaction is going to unfold based on the protocols, but I do think it matters. And I do think it's a, a much needed injection of, of goodwill, of good feeling for the players that are going to be able to play in front of a, a smaller crowd. Uh, compared to what we've seen, 11,000 is going to seem like 125,000. Right. And, and not only that, their families are going to be allowed in too, which, which did happen actually in this series, in these series. Like I, 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 at least at the twin stadium, when the Astros were playing, a lot of twins families were in the stands and, you know, just th- look, this has been hard. Um, you know, baseball didn't go into uh, a bubble like the NBA did or like hockey did, but, so, so they've had it a little bit easier on being able to see their loved ones, but it wouldn't surprise me if there were a good chunk of players who tried to kind of stay away from their family. They know they're at risk, right? And so they're trying to stay away and if, you know, and so they're keeping their distance and everything else. And you can imagine, you know, for a player who is used to looking up back and know that his wife is up there and his kids are up there rooting him on like that matters and you know they haven't had that this entire season and all of a sudden now in the playoffs that's possible too and by the way that works for both teams both sides are going to be able to do that and so I I do think that you will see and I, I wonder if the quality of baseball over these next few rounds not just because the teams are better but if you'll also see that increase some um, just because they're, they're just in a more comfortable environment. It, it'll feel like a road game for basically everyone, right? Um, in fact, it will feel like a road game for everyone. 
no, no one will ever be playing in their home stadium. So, you know, I'll be curious to see how it looks going forward. I'm glad there will be some fans allowed. Of course, my son said, dad, are we going to get world series tickets? It's just in Dallas. Like, no son, your mom would kill me if I took you to a, (laughs) to a baseball game right now. But, but you know, we'll, we'll watch on TV. Let's now bring in our guest, Dr. Katie Russell Newland, huge baseball fan, has an amazing story to tell that really fits perfectly with our podcast about memories, about legacy, about the impact that a baseball road trip had on her. She's a cancer survivor, really, really special lady. And this is our conversation with Dr. Katie Russell Newland. It is awesome today to welcome in our guest for the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. She is a former college classmate of ours who has gone on to great distinction as an educator, as an author, and her journey throughout the Major League Baseball stadiums in honor of her mother has prompted her to write a book entitled A Season with Mom. It's going to come out in April 2021. She's newly married. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Dr. Katie Russell Newland. Katie, it is awesome to have you on the show. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Katie, I am so pumped because I saw kind of some news reports of your journey and what you've been up to after college and your resilience and some struggles and some joys and things like that. And we thought that you were perfect to have on the show because our podcast likes to use sports as a platform to tell bigger stories like relationships, making a difference, impact, and successes that go beyond the winning or losing of a game, whether it's an athlete, whether it's a fan, a spectator. So we're so glad that you're here. Thank you. So Katie, tell us about kind of the Cliff Notes version and then we'll dive deeper, kind of kind of big picture. What did you do all of those years ago uh, around the Major League Baseball stadiums and, and what was your purpose in doing so? Sure. Uh, so in 2015, um, I had just completed my PhD and had learned that I was two years cancer-free, which is a big deal for Hodgkin's lymphoma in particular, and around the statistics in terms of reoccurrence. And I think, you know, oftentimes when transitions um, loom, uh, it gives you time to reflect um, about sort of what's going on in your life and what you want for your life. And I had this idea about going to see all the major league ballparks instead of just, you know, hopping on a job right away. And it wasn't a dream that I had, you know, in that moment, it was a dream 30 years in the making. And um, I knew that I wanted to start in Philadelphia because that's where my mom's family was from. And it was also her birthday um, on that day, opening day was. And so I knew I wanted to start there. Our favorite love was the Chicago Cubs and I knew I wanted to end there. And then everything else in between, I was just going to let unfold as it would. Um, so um, it was definitely the right time to go, given um, what I had been through. And um, I, it was just a magical journey. So tell us about your mother. Her name is Anne. Yes. And, and she passed away from colon cancer. Yeah. Tell us just about growing up your love for baseball because you grew up in New Orleans, doesn't have major league baseball, but was there a minor league team you guys rallied around and how did you get to know the Cubs? Did you get to know them like we all did on WGN with Harry Carey and Steve Stone and Tom Brenneman and Mark Grace and all those? It was like the Superstation introduced us to baseball. That's exactly right, Zach. I, we had no baseball team in New Orleans and um, WGN obviously televised the Cubs, TBS televised the Braves and 
for some reason we went with the Cubs, which I'm actually, I'm almost a hundred percent sure is because they were the underdog and my mom always was for the underdog. And so I think we, um, you know, started watching them on WGN and the fact that they were televised every day gave us something to do consistently every day. So I would come home from school and run into her room and the game would be on and um, we'd start watching. And uh, I think that um, actually was the, the thing that bonded my mom and I together. Um, and, you know, I was one of six kids and she had owned two restaurants. And I think baseball was this one area that we could spend time together and we could really let baseball do the talking. Um, and so I think that, like you said, um, I think that growing up in a city that didn't have a team allowed us to find what team we wanted to be a part of. And Chicago Cubs were, despite their losing record, were the greatest team in my eyes <laughs> growing up as a kid. I'll never yeah. forget, I was watching the Cubs game, the Cubs game once when Harry literally looked at the camera and said, and nobody believed it at the time because they were like a last place team. And I think they just like swept a double header. So there was good fortune that day. He said, sure as God made green apples, the Chicago Cubs will win the World Series one day. Yes. And it happened 18 years after Harry passed away. But uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. and, for, and for those young youngins out there who are not our age, um, Wrigley was the last to get lights. And so that was kind of the fun thing back in those days, right, is that WGN and TBS, like you mentioned, so we would come home from school in the central time zone, which all of us, I guess, were, Zach, I guess you were an hour behind us. You grew up in Denver, but you would get home from school and the Cubs would probably, you'd probably have, what, six innings or so left of a game to finish up a day game. And then... And then, and then the Braves would start, right? Because they would have the night game. Um, but I'm guessing when you, that's probably the other reason that you ended up with the Cubs, right? If your mom owned restaurants, my guess is, is that she was, she was working nights a lot. So you were going to bed doing homework after she was gone in, in probably many cases. And, and that's the other reason. So, so I became the Braves fan on the flip side of that. Uh, Dale Murphy was my guy. So I'm curious, just as we're kind of reminiscing about those days. So who, who were your, who were your favorite players growing up? Who'd you love to watch on the Cubbies? Gosh, I mean, Mark Grace, for sure. Um, and Ryan Sandberg and Shaywan Donson. Uh, I, uh, I loved all those, but hands down, my favorite was the Hawk. Andre Dawson just melted my heart. On a last place team. He's the only, well, now he's only the second person who's won the MVP, yeah, on a last place team. Um, he's just, he's just mad. I just love him. I like his quiet resolve. I like his, you know, determination. I mean, he played most of his career injured. I mean, his knees were awful. I remember in his Hall of Fame speech, I'm talking about that. And um, that's just, to me, it's just so honorable because, you know, players, I think, lives are out in front on social media and everyone knows everything going on with them. And, and back in the day, they just played baseball. And all the things that happened in the background weren't, um, a part of the conversation. And I, yeah, Andre Dawson, hands down. <laughs> yeah. How about, so I would, how, about, how about Harry Carey with a Twitter account or Instagram about that? That would be scary. You'd have to have certain hours where maybe it wasn't active. That could be, that could be dangerous. Like 1 a.m. to 4 a.m.? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Cubs uh, have an intern that, that his entire job is to just follow Carey's uh, social media accounts and hit delete real quick. 
exactly. So Andre Dawson, um, I, I was a big baseball card collector as a kid, and I would write to players all the time to try to get autographs in the mail. So I'd get a card, I'd like that player, I, and Andre Dawson was the first guy to ever actually send a card back. So he also holds a special place in my heart because, I mean, you know, like as a kid, I was probably I don't know, eight or nine years old and, you know, getting that piece of mail of, oh my God, a major league baseball player who, who ends up being a Hall of Famer, right? You know, actually wrote me back and he actually sent a letter with it and the whole thing. I still, I still own it. So. That's so reflective of his uh, personality. And in fact, I had an autograph picture of him in my room and as the years went on and my parents moved our home um, in Pasker Shan, Mississippi, that house those things was ruined in Katrina and that autograph went away. And it was one of the things I was most sad about um, was that image of him and his autograph. And um, uh, interestingly enough, at the end of my journey, he sent me or somebody sent me, I don't think it was him, but an autograph picture of him and on it, it said to Katie, you're an inspiration to us all. And I about melted. Um, I, it was probably one of the highlights of the journey, to be quite honest. I had worn his jersey when I threw out the first pitch. And um, I, like you, you know, it was that little kid again, who was, you know, watching him on TV and the little kid who got it in the, his autograph in the mail and connected with him in a way that you didn't think was possible um, being an average person and him being a major league baseball player. And I think that's the gift of Andre Dawson. I mean, he's a, a funeral director now, right? Mm -hmm. I don't yep. know a more human um, position to put yourself in than to be a part of people's lives at a time when it's the most emotional and challenging. So talk to us, Katie, as a kid growing up. So for, so you finished your journey in Chicago. So maybe we should take the journey and go backwards since we're talking, since we're talking Cubs. So Katie got to throw out the first pitch at a Cubs game. So just give us, I don't know, your thoughts, your feelings, that second that you were wearing the Hawks jersey and, you know, your, your, your toes touch, touch the dirt. You know, the second you walk out there under the, under the lights um, at Wrigley, what, what was that feeling? What was that like? Well, I think in order to talk about that, I have to actually take you a little bit back to being a kid because I recreated that scene in my mind in our backyard over and over and over again as a kid. I this would, was a dream. Sorry? This was a dream for a long time. Oh, yeah. So I would, I would go out in the backyard and I would throw against, we had this white brick wall that was sort of a foundational piece in our um just for our house and I would take masking tape and I would make a box and I would, you know, pace off the steps and I would pretend like I was you know, in the bottom of the ninth full count, Russell on the mound and um, go through the whole thing over and over again. My brother to this day teases me. He's like, I could hear you, you know, out there saying run faster, Katie, run faster. Like, so I still get teased about it. I would set up scenarios. And so the idea that, you know, 30 years later, I could actually be on that mound, um, never crossed my mind, one. And two, 
was perhaps the most anxiety producing <laughs> experience in one way because you've built it up in your mind all these years um, and then magical in another. Um, so when I stepped out onto the field, I really tried hard to take it all in. Um, I'm certainly a recovering uh, perfectionist and I wanted to throw the pitch well, um, sort of losing sight of the fact that that moment was about completing a dream and completing a journey um, of going to all 30 um, major league ballparks. And so I wanted to really focus on just, you know, being in the, in the, in the stadium, in Wrigley um, with the fans. And so I, I, I did that when I walked out, I sort of looked around, I forgot what I was doing. And then when I got on the mound, I did my plan of a deep breath. And as a lot of athletes say when they go in the zone, this sounds really strange <laughs> given my small experience with being on the mound, but I went into that zone and it was just me and the brick wall and actually me and my dad on the porch playing, you know, pitch and, pitch and catch and everything went quiet and all I could see was the catcher and everything went still around me. And when it, when it was over and it, you know, then the fans cheered and that's when it sort of came back, you know, and I was like, Oh, I, I did it. I just threw out the first pitch at Wrigley field, you know, something I had, you know, perhaps practiced my whole life. Um, it came true. And I don't think it was until after it where I really processed the magnitude of the moment because I was so in it just, you know, living inside of it. But it was, it was an amazing experience. Who, who caught for you? Um, Justin, um, gosh, what was his last name? He, he's no longer with the Cubs. Uh, he's a pitcher. So the okay. pitcher catches. Um, yeah, usually, yeah. yeah. Somebody who's not um, on the start day, yeah. Yeah, and interestingly enough, his pitching coach, one of his pitching coaches, not with the Cubs, was also a pitching coach for my nephew, my sister's kid. Um, uh, and so, sorry, I was trying to remember his name, Grom, just, uh, anyways. Um, so I thought that was fascinating that the guy who caught me that night actually had a connection to, you know, my own family in some ways. Katie, tell us about um, Ann Russell, your mom and the kind of legacy that she leaves behind, kind of the inspiration for this journey. And you wrote about, I, I, wrote the, I read some of the previews of your book, that part of this journey was, yes, going to all the stadiums, but also finding some, some things about your mom and also learning about yourself in the process. Tell us about her, tell us about the inspiration, and then how that all led to this. Sure. Well, my mom was um, a person who went after everything in life. She was um, enthusiastic. She was a free spirit. She loved people um, and people loved her. Uh, I don't know whether it was in direct opposition to her exuberance that I was a quiet, more introverted person or just genetically how I came out, but I was certainly not someone who was spontaneous and not someone who um, seized the moment as she did. Um, I certainly didn't lack a model of it as she on a daily basis um, was modeling for me what it meant to put herself out into the world. At 42, she started a restaurant with six kids at a time when 
you know, females really weren't head chefs of restaurants and in a city where, such as New Orleans, where there are many culinary treasures, um, that was a bold move for her, I think. Um, and I think watching her do that, I sort of always wanted to be that person, but that wasn't who I was. And so I think in doing this journey, I was following her lead. I think I had been so cooped up um, for so long in not only my cancer treatment, but also my PhD program that I wanted to be free and I wanted to be spontaneous and I wanted to be that person my mom always was and I never was. And so I think um, she inspired me to do that. And I think she um, gave me the tools to do it when I didn't even realize she was. And so I think I found that sort of part of me in doing the journey. And I think she was really good about making herself vulnerable. And that was not something I was good at. I was, I played things safe. I did my homework. I did what I was supposed to do. I followed the rules and life would turn out okay, right? Well, it didn't in fact turn out okay with that model. So I learned that you know, it's okay to put yourself out there and to fail and to be vulnerable. And I think that's what she modeled for me most of my life. So Katie, can you walk us through the timeline a little bit? So both of you battled cancer. Can you talk about how old you were when you were diagnosed, where she was in her journey, all, all of that, sure. that kind of led to this kind of amazing baseball journey? Absolutely. So I was 29 when she was diagnosed with colon cancer and I was living in Austin. She was in um, New Orleans and Tascostran, um, spending time in both um, cities where we had homes. And she passed away three years later after she had um, first been diagnosed. And I didn't really process that, um, I think, in the moment because I was in the middle of a very um, challenging and PhD program. And I think I sort of just put my head down and kept working and doing what I was supposed to do. Um, and three years later, uh, I got cancer. Um, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and melanoma. And I was 35 at the time when I was diagnosed. And so, I took about, it took, a, it was about a year long process of treatment. I went through um, eight rounds of uh, chemotherapy and then 27 days straight of radiation from seven different angles. And um, I went through that experience and then came out of that. And about three, four months later, I got what was called Lermite's sign, which is very, it's pretty rare. It's less than like one or 2%. Don't, I wouldn't quote me on the percentages, but extremely rare as told by my radiation oncologist where radiation gets to your spinal cord. And so I was not able to really, I could walk, but I wasn't able to walk without being shocked. Um, so if I tipped my neck down my whole body, it felt like an electric shock. So just when I thought I had sort of completed my cancer treatment and was moving, taking steps to move forward in my, 
in my life. Um, that sort of set me back again. And it was about a year long process, which is the longest they'd ever seen, had data on it, MD Anderson, of someone experiencing it, which I thought, lucky me. <laughs> um, and so during that time, I actually thought, well, okay, what can, what can I do with this, right? I think part of going through cancer and through challenging situations, no matter what it is you're going through, is learning from that experience and finding the good or the gift inside of it. And I thought, well, I can't move really around. I don't really want to be in public. I don't have much hair and I don't feel well. My muscles had totally atrophied. And I thought, well, what can I do? Well, let me just sit at my desk and get my dissertation written. And so that's what I did. I spent that year just turning out, you know, a 350 page dissertation. Um, and so by the time the Lermites had finished uh, or had subsided, I should say, and I had finished, completed my degree, um, was when I thought, well, I'm ready to get out into the world. You know, I've been cooped up for two years. I think it's not unlike what everyone is experiencing right now in the pandemic, where we're closed off inside and lacking connection with people. And I wanted to go out into the world and, and live again, and to be with people and to connect and to to watch baseball, you know, which brought me so much joy in my life. And so I think that's sort of the timeline um, in big picture form of what got me to, or what brought me back to baseball. So, so let's start with that, that first game in Philly. So one thing you don't know about me, Zach does, um, my son, who is now 10, we started doing baseball road trips when he was six. Um, and we have been to together, I think now, I think we're at 19 of the 30 stadiums, MLB stadiums, and then probably another, gosh, I don't know, 20 or so minor league ballparks where we will literally leave for a month in the summer and just head out on the road and, and put a schedule together and, and hang out together. And, and our daughter, my daughter has joined us on a couple of them for bits and pieces. And my wife has joined for games here and there. So I know how special that is. Um, talk to us about what that 30 stadium tour, cause you did it all in one season, right? I did. Yeah. So, so just, just walk us through a little bit, maybe some of the highlights, some of the, the memories that, you know, probably the little things that you'll take away the, the stadiums, the people you meet, the, the opportunities you were given. I, I would, I would love to just kind of, if you can paint that picture for us a little bit. Sure. Well, first, Matt, congratulations on creating that experience with your kids because that is something they will never forget. And it's, un it's unreal. It's unreal. And actually, Zach and uh, Noah, his son, uh, joined us for let's see, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, right? And then the NFL Hall of Fame in between there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. We don't like sports a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, 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 and just to maybe paint the picture a little bit from my perspective. So, so I grew up a baseball fan. I am very much the guy, and my bet is, Katie, you and I have a similar perspective. Baseball is so nostalgic for me. It is, for me, I like the pace of the game. Maybe that makes me an, an old 
curmudgeon or whatever. I like the pace of the game. I like that there's no no clock. I like that it might go 20 innings. I like that, you know, it's okay to get up and want and wander around the ballpark and, you know, go down the weird Coca-Cola slide or whatever the case may be. (laughs) And one of the things I love about baseball stadiums is that no two are alike, right? The beauty of baseball is that the field dimensions are never the same. Um, you know, you can go to Wrigley, that's this kind of perfect cutout, you know, circle with the ivy or semicircle with the ivy. And then you can go to Houston with some stupid hill that used to be in center field. And then this weird cutout in left center by Crawford boxes or whatever. Um, I remember going to Old Tiger Stadium with a weird flagpole right in the middle of center field that I just knew some, you know, $400 million center fielder was going to kill himself on. So I, I guess just, so to me, like, that's what I love about it and experiencing all of that. So I, I, I just really want to hear, like, I think we have a lot of that in common. So I would love just your stories and things that, that really stand out to you. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. That's the, those are the exact reasons why I love baseball. Um, the, the sense of, place that it gives you and and the pace of the game. And in fact, all those things you just mentioned are exactly what I write about in the book, um, which is affirmation for me that it resonates um, with you um, in the same way that it's resonated uh, with me. And, And the idea that unlike other sports, baseball stadiums often resemble the communities in which they reside. And, you know, football stadiums are big concrete you know, masses, and you, you don't know when you walk in whether or not you're really in, you know, a certain, you know, New Orleans versus another, you know, the Atlanta Dome, or whereas, you know, baseball stadiums have so much character. So learning about all the different communities that these baseball teams live in was one of the highlights for me. Um, and all the different characteristics of the community they brought into um, the building of the ballpark. So that to me was one of the best parts, I mean, Miami was just Miami. You, you could step outside of the Miami ballpark and know I am in Miami. The big palm trees, the white clean lines, and then the end, when you enter the you know, colorful displays. I mean, I know they've now since taken down the massive sculpture with the dolphins and the waves and all the, the crazy things in center field that they had, but it's, it is Miami through and through. And I think that's one of the best parts about baseball is that not only are you getting a game, but you're getting a glimpse into a community. And oftentimes for me, it was a communities that I knew nothing about. And so I think that was really important um, for me and a highlight. Um, I think I want to touch on the, the pace thing that you mentioned, because I know that it's sort of under scrutiny in the sports world of should we, you know, create clocks to make people go faster? Should we shorten things? Let's, you know, it's too slow of a game, but, but that is in essence what baseball is. And that's what the beauty of it is because you can sit and have a conversation with someone in the middle of the game. You can't do that at a football game. You can't have a deep, meaningful conversation because the action's happening. The pace is so fast. You're going to miss a touchdown, right? In, in baseball, you can sit and have a meaningful conversation with a complete stranger that you've never met, another fan, and realize that really you're, all not, you're not all that different from the person sitting next to you. 
And so the best part about the journey was meeting the fans and the people who I happened to be sitting next to, no plan, no, you know, I picked, picked it off of a computer, right? I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I did try to find many different um, parts of ballparks so I could experience baseball from different angles and different levels and different seating, um, different seats. But I didn't know who was going to be there that day. And every time I was blown away by who I was sitting next to and their story and how we were so connected in ways that I could have never imagined. And, you know, in Kansas City, I remember sitting in front and behind a, a couple and their child and he had ordered cotton candy and I, I sort of started taking photos and I learned that some of the best photographs were not or were the things in and around the game right um, and so I started snapping them and there's just great shots of this kid eating cotton candy so I leaned over to tell them so that you know they didn't think I was some creepy person taking photographs <laughs> of their kid and um, they were like, oh man, send these to us. So I did. And it turns out she just finished her PhD. Her mom also died of cancer. And I, I think that when we go to a baseball game, we're going not only to see athletes do what they do best, but we're going to be in community with other people. Um, and I think that was the best part about the journey. And only the pace of baseball would allow I think me to do that so and I think I think the other thing that the pace allows is it allows there, there's no other sport where the players on the field have an opportunity to interact with fans on a really personal level and I hope I understand the netting going all the way around and I understand all of that from a safety perspective I hope that that doesn't cut into that because only baseball it's not like in football they're throwing out a ball, right? I mean, literally like almost every at bat, at least one ball is going into the stands, right? Whether that's a player tossing it into a kid, whether it's whatever, right? You know, only in baseball, five minutes before, you know, the national anthem are, are players walking over to the sidelines, you know, to the stands to sign a few baseballs for a few kids before they, and so, so to me, I think that that pace goes with that, right? It's like, all, and because there's 162 games, the season is so long that those players, every moment doesn't have to be filled with, say, football, where you're only 16 games, right? If we, if we don't win today, it may be a playoff, you know, whether or not we get into the playoffs. In baseball, a win or a loss on a general given day outside of maybe, you know, pennant chases in September um, – it doesn't really matter that much. And so you see that in the guys who play the game, they're just so much more relaxed and calm. And I think it, it allows that interaction. And that's the difference with watching it on TV versus being there in person um, to me. And, and maybe it's also going for me going with, with my kids, you know, obviously kids view the world through a different lens and players interact with them in a very different way than they would with, with me as a, a middle-aged dude standing on a sideline. Um, but I just, I love that that's part of it, right? That adds to the experience and, and really just creates magical moments. I totally agree. And one of the best things I've seen added to the baseball experience at home during the pandemic has been the mic'd up players in the middle of gameplay. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but, yeah. but I'm like, y'all need to keep this around because that is an intimate look at what's going on in a game. And I think that is a game changer 
to have a player in, you know, waiting on the ball, telling you what's going through his mind is an amazing addition. If, if we can think of any gifts that have come out of this pandemic in regards to baseball, it's that piece right there. Yeah, it allows actual personality, right? So, so talk to us. So out of the 30 stadiums, what was your favorite and why? You know, everybody has asked me that question. It is the very first question that any media outlet has asked me, <laughs> sure. any interview has asked me. And every time I say, I, you know, I, I don't have a favorite because it discounts all of the, or, the others, right? Yeah. And some people respond like, oh, that's sort of a bad answer or that's a, but what I think, um, what I can tell you is that there was something amazing, you know, at each one. So whether it was, Pittsburgh surprised me the most. I went in Beautiful. not realizing, I guess, really what Pittsburgh was going to be. And it was the most shocking in terms of how gorgeous the ballpark is. Um, even knowing about learning after about how it was sort of a resisted um, project for the city and how they had to fight and fight to get it and figure out funds. And, you know, to me, it was sort of a lesson in, you know, what we resist often becomes the thing we most cherish in life because that stadium is a knockout. Um, so I, I think Pittsburgh was my, the most um, shocking for me. I, lo I loved it. Um, it's hard to beat, you know, America's ballpark Fenway on America's birthday. That was magical. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, Dodger Stadium and the surrounding um, uh, where it's placed and what surrounds it and it, its history um, and eating a Dodger dog, you know, you can't beat that. Um, that was pretty magical. Um, I think that you're not going to top or I'm not going to top Wrigley um, and getting to throw out the first pitch and it being the place where I completed the journey and the place that my mom and I um, held so dear. So I can't really pick anything other than Wrigley because of its history, because of its relationship with, um, you know, that I had with my mom around it. And, you know, that's actually where we went to Wrigley when I was a kid and she let me pick where we were going to go, what restaurant we were going to go to. And I picked Harry Carey's and we got to sit at Harry Carey's table. And that's where we had the dream to go see all the 30 major league ballparks. So to come full circle, and to be in Wrigley, and um, we actually ate at Harry Carey's after, and to um, complete that dream, it, it's hard to top top that. So they were all amazing, though. At each ballpark, which is why baseball is so special, each ballpark brought its own unique um, charisma, and I, I really, and I'm not just saying it, I really loved them all. Yeah, I agree. So how I did mean, it the, work logistically? Katie, how did it work logistically? Did you fly? Did you drive? How did this all work? It's a great question. Um, again, I, I knew I wanted to start in Philadelphia. I knew I wanted to end in Chicago. I certainly created a spreadsheet because that's my nature. Um, so I, I, as much as I was sort of going with um, the universe and where I was being directed, I, I, I definitely started filling things in. I had some friends who I wanted to see games with in cities, so I kind of timed it with that. Or, for example, my sister I knew was going to be in Seattle um, giving a presentation. And so I went to the Giants and Oakland game and then took the Pacific um, Coast train all the way up um, to Seattle 
with my sister. So um, to see the, awesome. the Mariners, which was such a cool experience. My mom loved trains. So that was, that was part of, I think, tapping into one of her, her loves and something she never really got to do. Um, and so then I just, I really timed it with, um, you know, my life that was going on and I graduated in the middle of it and I would go for about a week or so and do some games and then I would come home. And part of that was based on my health and trying to maintain, um, having come out of cancer treatment and really focused on trying to be the healthiest version I could, you know, traveling and is not easy on your body. And so I tried to give myself breaks um, to ensure that I was continuing with my exercise and my eating well and um, those kinds of things. And so I would take, you know, small breaks and then go back out. So I would say, you know, I flew to a lot of them. I took a train. I drove in between ones that were close by. Um, it was really a, a mixture of transportation and as well as who attended the games with me. Sometimes it was a family member, sometimes it was a friend, but honestly, at the end of the day, the games that I went to by myself, which were quite a few, over half, were probably um, the best in terms of introspection and my ability to really get out of the game um, what was intended for me to get out of that day. And Katie, like just the adversity in your life, uh, you've had a blessed life, there's been uh, joys and also some real heartbreaks. So your mother was diagnosed with cancer right around the time Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, decimated your home, your mother lost a very valiant battle with cancer. You're a cancer survivor. And, and you wrote in the book, and I really encourage people to read A Season with Mom. It's coming out April 6th, 2021, Katie's mother's birthday. You wrote about how you don't control really what happens to you in your life, but you can control how you respond to that adversity and how that adversity can be fuel for you going forward. Can you just talk about losing a home in a hurricane, childhood memories literally being washed away, losing a family member, fighting for your own life, and then how that's shaped your current mindset where you're getting married and of course a pandemic cancels your dream wedding with your now husband and you guys go get married kind of on the fly. How does that all work? Gosh, it's you know, such a good question, Zach. Um, because I think that you know, oftentimes we, we hope that our lives are not filled <laughs> with all those things. And we hope that, you know, we move through the, the world with, um, you know, not losing people and not losing things and not um, experiencing tragedy. But the reality is, is that everyone has something and it's how we sort of deal with those things or how we use those things to move us forward. And if to use a baseball analogy, I, I think of it as, you know, the strikeouts in my life, right? I've had a lot of strikeouts, but so do a lot of baseball players. They're unsuccessful more than they are successful. So um, baseball is sort of the perfect analogy for what, how do you use those strikeouts, right? How, what do you learn from them? Um, how do you tweak your stance a little bit? Do you open it up? Do you, um, you know, what kinds of things do you do as a result of those strikeouts that put you on the path to hitting the home run? And I think, I hope that the book communicates hope to people um, that, you know, dreams don't have timetables. Um, even if it takes 30 years or 108 
years, like the Cubs, you know, dreams can come true and that hardships, um, that there's life beyond the hardships, right? That when you're in it, that there is um, the possibility of joy um, and there is the possibility of um, a, a time when those things are not um, bringing you down in your life. Because I certainly experienced several years of challenges um, and through it all on a daily basis, I tried to find the joy or I tried to find um, the positive thing. So for example, in cancer treatment, I would, you know, paint my nails a crazy color, every treatment, a different one. And I would, you know, made a playlist to pump me up and I had a, like a uniform that I would wear to, you know, chemo. And when you can find, I think, joy in the challenging times, I think that's what sets you on a path to living a fulfilling life. It's not not having the hardships. It's what you do with them, like you said. And, you know, I waited a long time to find my person. And at 42, I realized that all those hardships and all the things I experienced and the loss of our childhood home and not knowing if my dad was alive because he was stuck back in the storm ultimately led me to him. Um, and in Interestingly enough, as you said, when we were going to get married, the pandemic hit and we weren't, we weren't able to go to, or we weren't able to have our wedding. And so we ended up getting married, just the two of us in a park by ourselves. And in that moment, I'm reminded again that we have a choice in how we handle it. And I don't need hindsight any longer to realize in the moment that I have a choice. I think as you grow older, you start to realize that um, that there's gifts in every moment, even the challenging ones. And so I hope that the book and my story and my journey, um, and gives that to people, no matter what they're going through. I think that is a really great place for us to wrap up. So she is Katie Russell, now Newland. Uh, congratulations again on the wedding. I hope you get to celebrate with your family and friends once we come out of all of this in the biggest way possible that it's the roaring 20s once again for you. Um, <laughs> the website right now is mlbformom.com. I hope everybody goes and checks it out. The book is A Season with Mom, Love, Loss, and the Ultimate Baseball Adventure. You can actually pre-order it now on the website, and I hope everybody does so. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to catch up with you 25 years later or something like that. We're aging ourselves. Um, and uh, we, I know, Zach, I can speak for you too. We just wish you all the very best, and I hope you sell a zillion of these books and help inspiring everybody around you. It's really a beautiful story. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. I, I love talking sports with you. <laughs> yep, we can do it anytime, on or off, on Katie, or off camera. To, Katie, do I need to call Andre Dawson to get an autographed copy of your book? Is he like <laughs> your literary agent? Is he, he's like a big guy in your life. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. I'm really, really excited for next week. I'll, I'll probably get through it really, really quickly because I'm so excited. Uh, thank you, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Well, stay healthy. Glad you're healthy. Congratulations, and we'll see you soon. Bye.